Open your Bibles this morning, the book of Nehemiah, chapter 4. Children are dismissed to Children's Church. Nehemiah, chapter 4. We're going to finish the chapter this morning. Hadn't coughed all morning until I got to church. Whew. So, we will see. Uh, Nehemiah, chapter 4, verses 7 through 23. Um, In the Hebrew translation, this is its own chapter. Uh, They really cut off at at verse 6 and lumped that together with our chapter 3. They see that as one unit, and then they begin this one. And so in many ways, that's helpful because it's a new conflict. It's it's a result of what's going on. And so the first one is kind of the conflict specifically because they're about to start building. Now this is what happens while they're building. It's only going to take them 52 days to build the walls. We're not exactly sure when this happens other than that their walls are about halfway up. Uh, they've been, they're about halfway completed. Um, and so then the, all these events occur. You're going to see a series of uh, details that, that point to the conflict and then Nehemiah, how does he deal with it? Uh, everybody's ready for a fight till you get smacked. Uh, then nobody wants to get in a fight anymore. This is one of those spots where what do you do when, when the conflict actually shows up and people want to throw in the towel? They want to give up. They don't want to fight anymore. Uh, they're tired of this. I, I saw a video this week of a goat, uh, a, a cow, a bull, was picking a fight with a little goat. And the goat came running up and headbutted this cow and knocked it out straight away. All the fight was gone of the cow. And I think sometimes that's the way it is in ministry. We, we walk into it maybe um, just with a sense of naivety that because this is God's work, somehow it's going to go easy. Uh, we use language not really understanding what it means. We ask people to pray, borrowing Paul's language for an open door, effective open door of opportunity. We hear open door and we think easy door. Uh, We think easy, it must be open, you can just turn the knob and walk through it, as opposed to close, that would be hard. And yet when Paul uses that language, he uses it in the context of facing fierce opposition of people that wanted to kill him. So Paul didn't think of open door as easy door, but I think we tend to. And so when we think about doing ministry and engaging in ministry, and it really doesn't matter what that is, um, ministry in your home, discipling your children, talking to, to neighbors about Christ, trying to be generous and kind. It really doesn't matter what the ministry is. There, there are so many ways the enemy is going to attack, and it's not easy any longer. Ministry is always hard. You know, going to Krispy Kreme and, and eating donuts is easy. Uh, choosing to order the salad with, with horrible dressing is hard. Doing whatever your flesh wants to do is easy. Following Christ and doing ministry is like doing calculus while running a marathon. It's hard. And so what we see here in Nehemiah is he doesn't shy away from the difficulty of ministry and the conflict that that happens. And so uh, let me me just start reading, following your Bibles this morning, Nehemiah chapter 4. I'm going to start reading in verse 7. And I'm going to read down uh, through the end of the chapter. Chapter, chapter, chapter. I can't blame that on bronchitis. Um, So the Bible says this, But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs 
and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble by ourselves. We will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles, to the officials, to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. We are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon in his right hand. In Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, as he's telling this allegorical story of what it's like to live as a Christian, there comes a moment when Christian and his famed companion, Hopeful, are climbing up steep rocky cliffs of ministry. And they are getting cut and bruised and battered, and they are exhausted. And as they're climbing these hills and these rocky paths of ministry, there comes a moment where they see a bypath, a, a pathway that leads off to the side through a green pasture. And they consider to themselves that this grassy meadow must surely be a shortcut around all the difficult ministry that they've been climbing. And so they take this pathway off into the grassy meadow, and it's not long before they get very tired and they fall asleep. And when Christian and Hopeful awaken, they're awakened by a, a literal giant. And this giant that wakes them, he's a fierce giant, and his name is the Giant of Despair. He grabs them both and says, what are you doing on my land, and how are you here? And they try to explain to him that they're following God, and they're headed to the kingdom, and they're climbing these rocky, craggy cliffs of ministry, and they just needed a rest and a shortcut. He doesn't listen to them, but he grabs them both up and marches them to his castle, and there in the castle, he throws them deep into the dungeon. The, the castle is called Doubting Castle. And he leaves them in a pitch back black place, and he chains them there in the dungeon. And they describe it as foul-smelling, and so you can almost sense the sewage smell and the smell of death that is there in the dungeon of the Castle of Despair. And then finally, he comes back to see them. And he opens the door, and when he opens the door, though, he has this club, 
And he begins to beat them mercilessly over and over again. And as they languish in the dungeon of the Doubting Castle, they are beaten by despair until they think that they will surely die. He leaves them there again. And he goes to his wife, and his wife is one who has no pity. And he asks her, wife, what should I do? And she said, you should go and beat them again and convince them to kill themselves. And so he goes back to them again, and the giant of despair begins to rail upon Christian, beating him with his club, beating upon hopeful. So it seemed that all hope is gone. And then he tells them whether it is by poison, or whether it is by hanging yourself, or whether it is by a sword, kill yourself That is the only way to get out of despair. And there we see Christian and Hopeful, like so many believers, in the midst of difficult ministry, climbing rocky cliffs where you are cut and you are bruised. The ministry is oh so painful and difficult. It feels like every step of ministry is crawling like an infant across miles of broken glass. Where to go forward just seems to be more pain And all you want is out. And there are believers that even would faint to the point of despair, suicidal tendencies, deep depression, and desire for death. It feels discouraging when we have a season of victory over our sin. Maybe a sin habit pattern. Maybe a a place in your life where it seems like you keep going back to uh, something described in Hebrews chapter 12 as a besetting sin or a sin that easily weighs you down. When you're tired, when you're exhausted, when your flesh kicks in, what you go to first. And, And then all of a sudden it seems like you have a season of victory over it and you are encouraged in the Lord. And you say, see, I'm no longer who I used to be. And see how Christ is changing me. Only to find yourself fall again in the same way the next day. And it's despairing, isn't it? It's discouraging. You begin to wonder, will I ever change? It feels like the temptations you face now are just as strong as the temptations you've always faced. And it's discouraging. It's discouraging when we tell our hearts truth. When we preach truth to our hearts instead of listening to our hearts. No, you are loved by Christ. You are cared for by Christ. You belong to Christ. You are Christ's son or you are Christ's daughter. Uh, you are a, a royal priesthood and a chosen generation. And yet you feel like you're just as carnal as you've always been. It's discouraging. It's discouraging when we enact some new spiritual discipline. No, I'm going to go back and I'm going to be spending time in the word. And I'm going to memorize the word. And I'm going to pray. And and I'm going to meditate on God's word. And we do those things in the morning. And we feel like, oh, see, finally, I've been disciplined. And we find ourselves yelling at our spouse by 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It's discouraging. It's discouraging when we've poured into a person or a ministry, or program. Maybe cultivating a relationship over years to share the gospel with someone, only to find them abandon us. Maybe pouring into a child, a grandchild, or a friend, a neighbor, discipling them and caring for them spiritually, only to have them turn their back on you. It's discouraging. It feels discouraging when we have loved really, really well. We've loved sacrificially. We've given of ourselves, our time, our money, our energy, our talents. It's cost us. We've We've been terrified to do what God has told us to do, but we did it anyway. And then it goes unnoticed, uncared for, or worse than that, dismissed or criticized. It feels discouraging if we think we're the only ones fighting the fight. It feels discouraging if we show up at church and we feel like everybody else has it together but me. It feels discouraging when we are sacrificing for others, choosing ministry over self. It feels discouraging when it feels like the enemy is winning. Everywhere we turn, it feels like he's getting the victory, not us. And we find ourselves 
in this dungeon of discouragement being beaten by a giant of despair. And I just want to encourage us, honestly, this morning, Nehemiah, what he's going to show us is some of the skills of how do you encourage the discouraged. You know what encourage means? It literally means to give courage to somebody. And so, like, I don't know if you come here this morning and you're discouraged. And so you need to hear courage today. You need, you need God through this very broken vessel to give you courage. That may be where you're at this morning. Or it may be that there's somebody in your life and you're like, you know what, I know so-and-so. So when I'm describing discouragement and I'm describing despair, a different name or a different face was popping into your mind. Then you need to learn the skills that Nehemiah will show us of how do you encourage the discouraged. We need to learn the skills of how to encourage the discouraged in the spiritual warfare of ministry. And so that's what we're going to be journeying on this morning. And so the first thing we want to see, though, is the effective attacks of the enemy. Satan is really good at what he does. <coughs> um, when you fight him, it, it's, it's, it's not a small thing. And the attacks that he wages against Nehemiah and the builders are very, very effective attacks. Uh, he is relentless. He, you know, we've heard it said before, don't kick a man while he's down. Uh, that's not Satan's way. He will take every advantage. Uh, I had learned pretty early on, there's nothing, nothing, uh, the concept of a fair street fight doesn't exist. You're either a winner or a loser, and it doesn't matter how you got to the end of it. If you've never been in a street fight, you may not understand that concept, but trust me, all's fair. You don't want to lose. I remember watching or going to school one day and seeing blood all over the front sidewalk of the school because three brothers had jumped one kid because he had dared to mess with one of them. There's three on one. That doesn't sound very fair. You're right, but there was a winner and there was a definite loser. Satan will never fight fair. He will never give respite. Some of you actually are under satanic attack right now. You're here this morning. You've made the decision. You've defied the odds of the pollen, the time change, and the weather to be here. And yet you're finding your heart so prone to want to wander, your mind to want to wander, your heart to go somewhere else. He never fights fair, and he doesn't fight fair in Nehemiah's day either. The first thing he does is that they absolutely surrounds them. The language that it uses here right at the beginning, when Sambalat and Tobiah the, and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard of the repair of the walls, they start to rally together. And so just in a map sense, Jerusalem would be roughly right there in the middle, right around here. Here's Jerusalem. The Ashdodites would be to the west over here. Everybody else is all around them. They're completely surrounded by the enemy. Everywhere they turn, there's enemy. There's nowhere they can go to get rest. The reality is because they were to the north, the south, the east, and the west, that all their, any pathway of escape is, is cut off. Any supply network is cut off. They would have to survive in a city whose walls aren't even built yet, and they would have to survive a siege. If the enemies chose to try to come against them, there would be absolutely no means of escape. On top of that, those that have come to help that we looked at in chapter 3 from the various cities, some as far as 10 and 15 miles away, their families would then be essentially behind enemy lines. 
And so they would be left in Jerusalem worried about what are the Arabs, the Ashdodites, the Ammonites, and the Samaritans doing to their wives, their children, their sisters, their mothers that they left behind and that are stuck behind enemy lines. And so there was the constant terror of the being completely surrounded by the enemy. It would not have been difficult for the enemy to discover which town sent men to help. You simply go into the town, demand for everyone to show up, and all of a sudden you notice there's no men around. Well, where are they? They're all in Jerusalem. It would have been incredibly easy for them to punish everybody that's left behind. We actually see some of this fear expressed if you look down in verse 12. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. Can you imagine having gone in your building in Jerusalem? And here it is Monday, and you're working hard, and here you got the goals to get this big rock, this piece of rubble back into place. And then you look out, and, and you hear this voice, and you're like, man, it seems like I recognize that voice. And here is, is the, the older gentleman of the town who's the respected elder, and next to him is his wife and your two little toddlers. And you're so excited to see them. They don't have email. They don't have FaceTime. You haven't seen them now for a couple weeks, and here they show up. You're like, oh, I'm so glad to see you. And all of a sudden, they fall on you in tears and say, please come home. You have to tell them, no, I can't. I'm here. I'm doing this. And it doesn't just happen once, but 10 times they show up asking you. What would that do to your heart? My wife was left to deal with our kids when I would go off and preach at camps. And it's just she had these little phrases that she would teach them to just settle their hearts of fear because dad wasn't there. It was the hardest part. The hardest part, one of the hardest parts about going and traveling and, and preaching at camps and preaching at teens, revival services, evangelistic services, was leaving my kids at home. I can't imagine 10 times them coming and begging them to come back home. They are surrounded on every side by the enemy. And the people that they would care about, people that they would love, are being left vulnerable because of what they're doing. The threats that they give them are both real and imagined. We can see the threats very clearly. Verse 8, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem to cause confusion in it. If you skip down to verse 11, you see more threats. Our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them, and stop the work. Back in Ezra's day, when they were rebuilding the city, they had written back to the king, and they'd said, hey, the people are rebuilding the city so they can rebel against you. And the king at that time had written back to these same kind of folks and said, you know what, stop them. And so Ezra says they went in with violence and stopped them. So this is a very real threat. It's a very real threat that they, that they may come and wage war, that there'd be an actual battle that would take place here. These are goldsmiths and perfumers and merchants and priests. These are not, by their nature, trained military men. And so the threat that we're going to come and kill you, or you won't even see us coming, it won't even be a pitched battle. We're going to come in guerrilla warfare tactics and just assassinate you. I don't know, but i got to believe it's hard to sling mortar while you're worried about somebody stabbing you in the back with a sword. It's the constant threats that go against them. And some of them, because there was a reality in the past, now the difference in the past was that they had the king's approval. Now they would never have the king's approval. Nehemiah had the king's approval. And so maybe it's a bluff. 
But it's really hard when you're dealing with satanic attack because sin is unreasonable. Sin does crazy, stupid things. So it's not always predictable. You know, you, you, you try to, when you drive on the road, uh, I remember learning how to drive and suddenly realizing the only thing separating me from this crazy person on the other side of the road was, uh, you know, a 16th thick paint of yellow. That's not going to stop a car that's doing 60 miles an hour coming the other direction, is it? And so it doesn't, it's like the only thing, the only reason we're able to live driving is because everybody's following some version of the rules to some degree, some better than others, right? How many times have you almost been hit by somebody texting or calling or looking at the radio? I almost got rear-ended just this past week. I looked up and I was waiting to make a left-hand turn. I look in my rearview mirror and I see this car is flying down the road and it's a young person. I don't know, maybe college age. And I can see he's just totally filling with his radio. He locked up his brakes, heard squealing tires. You know, and me, my super fast 07 Odyssey. Nimble sports car that it is, got out of the way. You know, it's like what protects us? You know, it's, it's unre- you can't, we're surrounded, we feel like by people that are thoughtless. The enemy, though, isn't just thoughtless. He does unreasonable things. And so when they're saying we're going to come and kill you, a reasonable person might have said, well, look, they did that in the past in the Ezra day, but they're not going to do that now. But the problem is Satan is unpredictable. And when he makes threats, you, you, the bluff, it seems real. Think about uh, sin this way. Back in Solomon's day, you remember there comes the moment where the woman loses, the mother loses her own baby. So she steals her friend's baby. So her and the friend, they end up in a fight about whose baby it is. They go to Solomon, and both moms are saying, it's my baby. And so Solomon says, take a sword, cut it in two, and give half the baby to each woman. Well, the mother immediately says, no, 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 no. Give her the baby. But what does the other woman say? What does the other woman do? And think of the utter insanity of this sin. She is absolutely willing to watch someone take a sword and cut a newborn infant in two in front of her. That's how bitter and angry she is. That is an unreasonable position, isn't it? Like, that's crazy level sin. It's satanic, isn't it? Or you think of Judas. Judas spends years with Jesus. Judas sees Jesus put his hands on people and heal their blindness. They come, they cannot see, they've never been able to see. Jesus touches them, now they see. Judas has watched lepers come, literally skin falling off of them, bandaged up, because the infections that have taken place and the lack of the dead, the deadening of the nerve endings, and they've watched Jesus heal them and their physical features be restored. He's watched lame people walk. He's watched Jesus called dead people back to life. And he betrays him. Sin is insanity. Whether it's your sin or my sin, it makes no sense. We destroy our lives and the lives of others because sin is crazy. Sin never follows the Geneva Convention. Saul, at one point, is the king of Israel. He takes a sword in a public setting, and just while David is playing an instrument, everybody's there. Saul is filled with this intense fear of who David is, takes a sword and tries to kill him in front of everybody. He tries to commit murder. Sin is insane. And so there is a fearfulness to sinfulness. It's because of its utter irrationality and unpredictability. Threats take on far more power when they're spoken by an unpredictable person, don't they? 
You ever been in a setting where it's like total anarchy? It's crazy. I went to a snow camp one time. I was living in Baltimore. We were traveling up to a snow camp in New York. We got into this 15-passenger van, and I didn't know any of these kids. It's me and my brother and a bunch of kids I didn't know from another church. We're driving up there, and this one kid has a sock. And in the bottom of his sock, he put a, a, a pool ball, like a, like a cue ball or an eight ball. And, and I'm like, what is that for? He said, self-defense. I'm like, what kind of camp am I going to? What is this, Christian scared straight? So we get there, and I needed a lock and a sock, man, because this place was off the hook. Like, it was a huge dorm, and when the lights went out, it was like every man for himself. It was like 1 o'clock in the morning, I hear this kid screaming, he's getting a swirly. Do you know what a swirly is? That's when you take a kid's head and you stick it in the toilet and you flush it, and the swirl makes a swirl in their hair. This is a Christian snow camp. We have these other kids, they're taking popcorn kernels and they were putting them in a water balloon launcher. They'd run into your cabin, your cabin, it was a room by petition, and they'd shoot it at you. It's like getting shot with a shotgun of BBs. This was a snow, I was like, I can't, I can't wait to get out of here. It's like, who functions this way? Stink bombs going off at three in the morning. It was full on warfare to survive. I never went back, man. This was absolutely... And the scariest part was I realized the utter unpredictability of everybody. It was like insanity. This is the way Satan works. And so what happens when you're called to do ministry and threats start to happen? Don't, don't, don't raise your hands. Don't, you don't respond this way. But if you ever had to go have a hard conversation with someone and you are terrified, you're going to lose the relationship. The fear comes, doesn't it? And you're scared. And in part, you're scared in that moment because of the utter insanity and unpredictability of sin. Because people will throw away relationships over a hard conversation, won't they? They do. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying that you could spend years cultivating an evangelistic gospel relationship with a coworker or a relative, and then there comes a moment when you present Christ in the exclusivity of Christ, and you know, and you're terrified, and your heart rate goes up, and you're terrified in that moment, they'll walk away. Or you're terrified over small things. You're terrified of, of conversation. You're terrified of one of the things in our life group we were talking about a few weeks ago, someone else shared, but it resonated with me. And it, this is who I am. It's like, I'm not great at small talk conversation. Like, I have to get a whole mental list in my head of questions to ask somebody to talk to them about. You might think I'm crazy. That's the way I am. Like, I'm terrified I'm not going to know the next thing to say to somebody. And so I'll go and try to talk to somebody, and it's like I almost have this degree of social anxiety over it. Like, something horrible is going to happen, but I have all these fears in my head. They're going to think I'm a terrible person. They're going to think I'm a terrible pastor. They're going to think I don't like them. They're gonna think... Like, I think of all these things. And maybe, you don't, maybe you're not wired that way. That's one of the ways that I will get really afraid. And I know there's at least some of the rest of you that you're like, yes, Steve, I'm with you. I just want you to know part of our fears in that moment is because we know we have a living enemy. And he really does oppose us. And he really is after. And we get scared. Threats, real or imagined. We're afraid something's not going to go well. And we're afraid we're not going to perform right. We're afraid we're not going to... Do it just right. We're, we're, 
We're going to look weird. We're going to look different. I remember the first time I was a teenager and I was offered to be able to help take up the offering. I was afraid I was going to trip in front of everybody. First time I served communion. Now, most of my life, I'm, I've, I've been a pastor in a church context. So I haven't served, like handed people the dishes for communion. But in my early 20s, I, I was doing that. I was terrified I was going to be the guy that was going to drop the tray and dump all the juice everywhere. Whether they were reasonable fears or not, I had to fight them because there's just life, right? And they're threatening them. They're saying, we're going to come do this. And maybe the threats are real. Maybe they're imagined. But I just want you to know, threats take on far more power simply because we are fighting an unpredictable, insane enemy. People do crazy things in their sinfulness. And so what's the result? Discouragement takes hold. It hits us. Verse 9. We prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. And so physically, we're going we're gonna to try to protect ourselves. And he's going to impact the rest of what that looks like. But he says this differently in, in verse 10. He says, in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to build, rebuild the wall. This is what's being said by the people inside the city. When I was working installing cubicles, we were, worked for a company, and we installed all the office furniture and all the cubicles, and we were working in the IRS buildings, brand new IRS buildings they were building outside of D.C., the rule was whoever built the most cubicles the day before could choose the radio station the next day. And so my two friends, Mosey and Flight Dog, uh, these guys were kings at this work. Uh, they, were, they were my two closest friends there. Both of them claimed Christ. Um, Mosey was that guy that had played for the U18 soccer team, United States U18 national soccer team, and was trying to work, get money to go to, to go to college. And Flight Dog was Jeff Flight. The sergeant had been a former sniper. And so we all worked together. Well, these guys killed everybody, so they got to choose the radio station every day. And so it was honestly, frankly, hilarious, because out of deference to me, they chose the local gospel station. Now, this is Baltimore. So, I mean, when we say gospel, we're talking some gospel music going on here, Right? And, and it was hilarious watching all these, if I could say it this way, I'd just be blunt because I'm known for beating around the bush anyway. <laughs> it was funny watching all these white country guys work off their hangover while gospel music is cranking. In the morning shows, this comedy show, but then they would play, and the, the song of the day at that time on gospel stations was by a guy named Kirk Franklin called Stomp. And he actually performed with his group at the time, Salt and Peppa. But the lyrics, I remember it being hilarious. I'm sitting here putting the cubicles together, watching these guys with their, their heads pounding from drinking too much alcohol the night before. And other guys that were heroin addicts here working at this job. It was a great job. But I remember Kurt Franklin and, and Jeff uh, Flight Dog. And nobody, mess, just, nobody picks a fight with a sniper. Just mental note. Like, and he'd be like, turn it up, Riff! He had this gold tooth, he'd flash his gold tooth, and nobody fought with him. So I'd crank it up, and we'd hear Kirk Franklin yell out, lately I've been going through some things that's really got me down. I need someone, somebody to help me come and turn my life around. I can't explain it, I can't obtain it. Jesus, your love is so amazing. It makes me laugh just thinking about these guys. Troops, when they're marching, sing cadence to keep motivated, to make the miles pass faster. When I did drywall, they, it was constant uh, country music that these guys listen, all listen to, just cranking all day long. Sports arenas shake 
with the songs of their teams before they come out. Heaven will resound with the praise of God's glory. Why am I telling you all this? Because you don't catch this in the English, but that's actually a song that they were singing in the city. The Hebrew, they turned this into a song. Their song was one of lament. It was a song in the minor key. So think of this, this group that had been so excited to all work together to build the walls because of the threats of the enemy. This is what they now are singing. Somebody's made this into lyrics and a tune and the whole city is singing the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. They had begun to believe what the enemy was saying about them. So much so that it was the tune of their hearts. That would be like if you could take your fears and turn them into a song. I'm too ugly. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not capable. I'm not talented enough. I don't have a big enough network. I don't have enough friends. I don't have enough energy. I, I don't have enough training. I can't do this. I, I'm not good enough at making conversation. I, I'm, I'm, I don't have the best personality. I, I'm not... I don't physically look the way I would want to look or the way people would want. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. And you turn it into a song and you sing it all the time. It's funny when we try to teach our, used to try to teach our children uh, memorizing scripture, we'd always try to set it to songs. We'd find other ones set to tunes. Songs and hand motions, keys to helping kids memorize scripture. You set it to a song and you don't soon forget it. What are they singing in Jerusalem? A song their song of joy, their songs of uh, ascent that they would have sung in the temple presence and about the power of God and the functionality of God and the calling of God and the covenant of God and the love of God have been turned into songs that are all them focused saying we can't do it. On top of that, again, people keep coming back in verse 12 and they keep begging them 10 times to come home, come home, come home. All of this combines into an atmosphere of weakness, inability, and discouragement. This is what happens when a group becomes infected by this. There's a dark cloud that seems to settle in their midst. But it's not just in Nehemiah's day. Look at how, how Paul describes his own heart in 2 Corinthians. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way. Now, it's interesting that King James translates that, and you really could translate it either way, but the King James translated it, afflicted on every side, north, south, east, west. Uh, ESV trying to capture uh, more modern language here, afflicted in every way, and what it means is from every direction and in every possible capacity, all I'm getting is affliction. Physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, that's all I get is aff affliction. Now, now, when you may have heard somebody else say that, listen, all I've getting is bad news. Uh, no matter where I turn, bad things happen. North, south, east, west, I'm afflicted and all. If you're anything like me, you might be tempted to think that they are using hyperbole and they're being a little whiny. But I'm going to resist saying that Paul is using hyperbole or being whiny. And instead, I'm going to take Paul at his word. You ever had those days when it rains, it pours? If it can go wrong, it does go wrong. Some of you are like, forget days. How about like months, Steve? Those seasons where he says we're afflicted every way, but then listen to what Paul says, but I'm not crushed. And so while the pressure comes from every direction, 
It has not overwhelmed me completely. Perplexed. In other words, I don't know what's going on. Very Job-like. Why? But not driven to despair to the point of giving it persecuted. And so others are afflicting me. Others are saying, why are you following God? And you're doing a terrible job following God. And you're not a, a good servant of the Lord. He says, persecuted, but not forsaken. God has not left me. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. At its root, discouragement is when we take our eyes off Christ and put them on ourselves. We'll say that again. At the root, discouragement. Nehemiah's day, they start singing about their inabilities. Their sole focus is what they cannot do. At the root, discouragement is when we take our eyes off of ourselves, off of, off of Christ, excuse me, and put them on ourselves. When we're more worried about the broken condition of our clay pot than the glorious treasure inside. When they focus on their weakness, discouragement has arrived. We have got to learn the skills of how to help the discouraged with some encouragement in the midst of spiritual warfare. And so it shouldn't surprise us then that Nehemiah shows up as a voice of reason. I'm going to give you three ways he does it and we're going to be all done. First of all, he helps them to put on some new lenses. Now, last week we learned something very simple. When you're in spiritual warfare, we fight on our knees and on our feet. We pray and we obey. But I want to give you some skills to preach to your own heart of discouragement and to others. And so you need to recognize when you're dealing with someone that's discouraged, you want to help them put on new lenses to see things. The language in verses 13 through 15 is very interesting. So go again, and there's two ways we could translate this text and or interpret it. And so I'm going to give you both quickly, tell you the one that I land on and why. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and the bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Now, the first way you could translate and take this is that as Nehemiah went around the wall in the lower parts of the wall, so the wall was about halfway up, that's an approximate thing, right? If you had two and a half miles of wall and you said the wall's about halfway up, that probably means there's parts of the wall that are halfway, parts of the wall that are a little higher than halfway, and parts of the wall that are lower than halfway. So one of the ways to take this verse is to say wherever it was, there was dips in the wall, Nehemiah went around and he stationed soldiers there. Why would you do that? Because if you're going to attack walls, you're going to go to the lower parts of the walls. That's one way to translate it. I don't think that's what's happening. Here's why. First of all, it says that he gathers them by clans. Clans is actually a military definition. Clans was a grouping of 1,000 men. If you look throughout the Old Testament, whenever they're gathering them by clans, they gather them by clans, they group them by clans, gather the groups by clans, there was 1,000 of them. It's 1,000. So first of all, there's 1,000 of them. Secondarily, he gives a speech to the whole gathered group. When he says the nobles and all, he's talking to everybody at the same time. The other way to translate this would be to understand this. And then thirdly, he says it's in the open spaces. And when it says open spaces, it wasn't gaps or breaks in the wall. It was large open spaces. This is what Nehemiah did. Remember, Jerusalem is a city that's sitting up on a hill. The spies are coming around, and they're looking at the city, and they're watching the city. Nehemiah, there comes a morning, Nehemiah's like, okay, this is what we're going to do. Get all the guys together and tell them to bring their swords, their bows, and their spears. These are not primarily military uh, armament. This, this is what somebody had in their house. Right? You come to my house, uh, I, got, I got a couple 40 caliber, 40 caliber pistols, and so I bring my guns. That's what we got. Here's your well-armed militia. 
So he gathers them together, and what he did was he gathered them in the larger open places where the walls were broken down so that everybody on the outside could see them. And so that they could see each other. Because what happens when you have all these people working on two and a half miles of walls? They're all spread out, as they say later in the chapter. Do you know one of the chief means of discouragement of the enemy in the midst of ministry? I'm all alone. No, you're not. But we feel like it, don't we? Nehemiah knows that that's how you feel. Nehemiah knows that that was their fear. And so he gathers them all together. He gathers them into a standing army. And you know what this is reminiscent of? This is reminiscent of Elisha. There comes this moment when Elisha and his servant are surrounded by the enemy. And he's not afraid, but the servant is. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. It's the army of the Lord. And here's the point. There's more with us than that are against us. You are not alone. You know what you need to do to help discourage people? You need to remind them that God is on their side. The greater is he that is in them than he that is in the world. During discouragement, we need new lenses to view the battle. It's a physical expression of there's more of us than there are of them. They're scattered around the city, these spies, and they could see the enemies out there looking at them. They understood who they were. They weren't making any kind of, of hiding of their identity. And so for these men to suddenly stand together and to realize we're not alone, it was a physical representation of a spiritual reality. Sunday gathering is a physical representation of a spiritual reality. You are not alone. You're not. It's part of the reason we gather for prayer right after service. It's part of the reason we gather for life groups. These are reminders. You are not alone. The first thing you need to do is you need to help people put on new lenses in the midst of discouragement. You remind them that God is for them. He is not against them. That he will never leave them nor forsake them. You need to remind them that he is on the move. You might be aware of two or three things that God is doing out of the million that he's doing at any moment. This is why you should gather together and ask testimony of what is God doing in your life. Where have you seen him strong this week? Some weeks you've got to praise. Some weeks I've got to praise. But we praise God together because we know God is on the move. You've got to help people put on new lenses. But secondarily, you have to help them renew their trust. It's not enough to just be aware of it. This display of strength in community strengthens the discourage. It frustrates the enemy. Look at verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. They see what's going on. The people begin to, to have a confidence in what God is doing. The displays that we're in this together, we're unified and we're going to fight as one people. What the enemy loves to do is to sow discord. He loves to sow gossip and slander. He loves to sow doubt. And doubt is infectious like a virus and goes from one person to the next. When we're discouraged, we don't trust in our own strength. But unity also doesn't come primarily from trusting each other. It comes from working side by side with others who trust the Lord like you do. They end up building this wall in 52 days and it's a miracle and everybody recognizes God must be in it. God is the one empowering. 
So my confidence is not that I'm working alongside somebody else and look at their power, look at their talent, their gift. Don't ever look at Steve or Darren and think, yes, we can do it because look at, look at who these guys are and they walk with God. Don't ever have that confidence in me or in him as a man. Don't ever let your confidence only be God in another brother or sister that's with you. It's not their strength, it's God's strength in them. And so pray for God's strength in them to be real and vital, to be visible, to be realized, to be actualized out of them. Have a confidence in God's power, not in another person's. If we're going to help the discouraged, we must help to renew their confidence, not in the brokenness of their jar. We say statements to people trying to help them emotionally, and they give very minimal, nominal, brief support. We say things like this, you're good, you can do it. You're strong enough. It will pass. You're not the only one who's ever faced this. These are not bad statements, but they will only offer temporary emotional relief that will wear off quickly. What does Nehemiah do? He points to the Lord. Who does he say will fight for us? Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Verse 20, our God will fight for us. Before the Jews ever entered the promised land, God promised he would lead them in and he would care for them. And to remind them, what he said was, look at what I did to Pharaoh's army. What do you think I'm going to do to their armies? And you know what's interesting? The phrases that he used, he said, remember how great and awesome I am. What Nehemiah is doing, he's saying, think of the ways you've seen God get victory in the past. So as you're slinging the mortar, and you've got your sword at your side, Think about how you're in the very city that David knocked the Jebusites out of and took over and made Jerusalem. Think about how near you are to the valley where he killed Goliath. Think about how, very, how you were living in the city that Jeremiah preached in that one day you would return. Think about how the kings of Israel were surrounded by the enemy and there came times when God sowed confusion among all of them and dispersed the whole enemies. Remember how great and awesome your God has been in the past. And remember, he has never changed. Let your confidence be in the Lord. We renew the discouraged trust in the power of God. Not in themselves. Then lastly, refresh their love. Again, verse 14. He says, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. You know, there's 125 commands of Christ in the Gospels. The second most common command in the Gospels of Je from Jesus, 6% of his commands, was love your neighbor. That was number two. Number one, almost 17% of the commands of Christ are do not be afraid. Now, I, I don't think, by giving you those numbers, I don't think not being afraid is more important than loving your neighbor. I do think it's indicative of where our greatest struggles are. That we struggle with being afraid and discouraged, don't we? We struggle with not taking heart is another way it puts it. Nehemiah carefully reminds them here of who they love. 
The rest of the chapter, what happens is what Nehemiah is doing is he says, let the trumpeter be with me. And so Nehemiah goes to the most vulnerable place and he has the trumpet guy with him. And so if they were to see the enemy begin to arrange themselves or to come, the trumpet would blast and they would all gather together. And so Nehemiah, there's a practical aspect here. Hey, here's our plan going forward. Here's how we'll be safe moving ahead. This is how we'll all gather together. We'll all fight together. We'll fight for one another, but fight for the people you love. Fight for the God you love. Fight for the people you love. Why do we keep doing ministry? Lo- love. Love is what casts out fear. We are terrified and we are discouraged. But we lift the head of discouraged by reminding them of the real reason for the fight. Ministry at its core is about loving God and others. It's sacrificial, painful at times, high energy, long days, filled with attacks from the enemy. It isn't really a question of, will I feel like giving up? You will. It's a question of, what will you love most in those moments? Will we love our comfort? Will we love our peace? Will we love our rest? Will we love our freedom, our sin, our pleasure? Or will we love God and others? Nehemiah even stations their leaders where they can see them so that they're aware that they love them and they'll lead them and they're with them. The trumpeter is there. Nehemiah is in the most vulnerable position. He's willing to do, he's not willing to tell them to do something he's not going to do. He will take a sword. He will fight. As Christian and hopeful sat in the dungeon of the castle of doubt, beaten by the giant of despair, being told to commit suicide. The giant leaves and he chains them up again and shuts the door and they're left in pitch blackness. And Christian suddenly remembers something. He had been given a key earlier, and the key was called promise, and it hung around his neck. And he looks at Hopeful, and he says, something tells me that the key of promise will unlock every chain and open every door. And so he rises up, and he takes the key. And as Christian is encouraged by the promises of God, he is delivered from the giant of despair in the castle of doubt. Right after Paul says he's afflicted in every way from every direction, he says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 13 and 15. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus, bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that his grace extends to more and more people and may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Why does Paul, when he's afflicted on every side, keep speaking? Because he loves God and he loves them. He believes the promise of God that Jesus was raised from the dead, so he also will be raised from the dead. This is what the point of it is. Where are you discouraged? Where is your friend discouraged? I'm telling you, the pathway to encouragement is to renew and refresh their love of God and others. To dwell in the promises of God. Whether it's big things or little things, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He has not abandoned you. The primary skill of encouraging the discouraged is learning how to point them to the person, power, and promises of Christ. You could do nothing better than sit with a discouraged people, person and say, let's talk about Jesus. Can we refresh our hearts on how you've seen Jesus be faithful? And do not, don't, don't be blown away if the discouraged person says, I can't even think of any right now. Then you say, then let me start listening. Listen to me now as I tell you of how much Jesus has loved and what Jesus has done and the wonderful things he has done. Let us fix our hope and our eyes on Jesus. We need to learn the skills of how to encourage the discouraged. 
in the spiritual warfare of ministry like Nehemiah did. And I just will tell you, and the wall gets built. It gets built, folks. What ministry has he called you to? Where are you discouraged? And can you be refreshed in Christ? 